when you apply the stressor matters a lot, maybe even more than the type of stressor you apply. Because if you go hard when your body is already stressed and not ready to assimilate that stimulus, then basically you're just not gonna gain anything from it. So you just do that work, your risk to end up into a negative chronic response and that could be at work, a burnout and could be in training, being overtrained, all sorts of negative things, just poor health and performance. But the timing really matters. So if you want to set the stage, I think for better health and performance, we should try to manipulate the stressors in a way that is more in agreement with our body's ability to assimilate the stressor and respond to it positively over time. There is only one supplement that I think almost everyone on this planet should be taking, and that's a full-spectrum and highly bioavailable magnesium supplement because, well, let's face it, ever since the Industrial Revolution, our soil has been depleted of magnesium, and therefore our food is depleted of magnesium. And on top of that, our modern environments, which are inherently overstimulating and stressful, are constantly depleting our body of magnesium. And unlike other nutrients... This is not something your body can produce on its own. It literally needs to get it from the diet. And one individual kind of magnesium alone is not enough. You actually need seven different kinds to support over 300 biochemical reactions that help regulate your nervous system, red blood cell production, energy production, uh, managing stress and emotions, etc. And so the folks at Bioptimizers have made it very easy and convenient to add back in what the modern world leaves out. They've created Magnesium Breakthrough. Now, I've been taking this for the past two years, and the biggest benefits that I've seen are related to my evening wind-down sessions and my sleep. I tend to be pretty overactive in the evenings, just totally overthinking everything that I do. And this has helped me wind down and get more restorative, more efficient sleep. So I wake up feeling way more refreshed, more energized, more clear, more ready for the day. And the way that I see it, sleep is upstream of essentially every other health and wellness related habit and decision. Because if you're sleeping better, automatically you're going to have more regular cravings. You're going to have higher insulin sensitivity. You can derive more of all these inputs like fitness, right? You make more gains, you gain more muscle, you burn more calories, and you wake up feeling refreshed so that you can do it again and again and again. And then beyond the fitness, you have more energy to go for a walk, to do fun activities with friends. You are less stress so you can socialize anxiety-free, and you're also going to be retaining, refreshing, and refining your skills and information much, much better so you won't forget any names. And uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, over 300 biochemical processes that you're supporting with magnesium. Then sleep, I mean, wow, better sleep is just a better life in general. So I found it extremely helpful on a personal level, and I'm sure that you guys will find it helpful too. Your mind and body, and maybe even your spirit will will thank you. So anyway, if you want to get a sweet little discount off of this amazing, amazing magnesium supplement from Bioptimizers, all you have to do is visit the show notes. So you scroll down right now, takes just a couple seconds, and boom, you'll have access to all seven different kinds of magnesium that your body needs. All you have to do is hit the link and use code KYP for Know Your Physio, KYP. That's all. Enjoy 10 to 22% off depending on the package you choose, whether or not you subscribe. I'm obviously subscribed because I don't even want to think about whether or not I'm going to get this essential supplement in the mail. And uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoy that awesome stuff. And that's all for now. I'll see you guys on the show.
All right, you guys, we're back on the Know Your Physio podcast. I'm here with Marco Altini. He's a pioneer in biometric data science, specifically HRV. He's been uh, one of my biggest inspirations as a as a scientist, as a health scientist in this field. I first uh, became familiar with his work when I was on the scientific team at Biostrap. Uh, my friend uh, Chuck Hazard and I <laughs> are constantly expressing our appreciation for Marco and, and the way that he's paved uh, the road for us data scientists and, and data nerds. And uh, it's an absolute honor and pleasure to have him here on the podcast. So Marco, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate the invite. So we have a major topic to explore today, which is interoception. It's my favorite word in the dictionary. Uh, but before we get to interoception, before we get to using data as a backbone for all things performance and lifestyle and all that good stuff. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you do what you do? Why did you become an expert in such a specific niche topic? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I had no plan, I would say, to to get into this or uh, to develop this uh, very uh, niche knowledge in a way into the topic of heart rate variability and how to measure our stress response and everything from technology and the physiology of it and trying to use this data. Um, I have a background in computer science and in engineering. Uh, that was uh, maybe 10-15 years ago that I was studying at university and I was maybe not particularly captured by many of the topics we were studying those days until I had the opportunity to do a course in which we um, basically looked at uh, data captured uh, with uh, sensors that you could place also on the body to capture, for example, the activity of the heart, the activity of the brain, and all sorts of biosignals, we could call them. Uh, yeah, and that opened the world, basically, for me. Yeah, finally, I found something that was uh, yeah, really engaging and interesting in a way that um, many of the other things I was studying were not. So I started to get uh, a bit more familiar with the topics and go a bit deeper into this whole area, then I did a PhD in basically machine learning applied to data captured from the body. So how can we monitor certain signals? Again, for example, the activity of the heart and then capture um, or estimate our behavior, our cardiovascular fitness level or sort of things associated to health and performance biomarkers. Um, started two companies um, on similar topics, I would say. So one, we developed a sensor to track the activity of the uterus during pregnancy. So if we could see, for example, um, changes in uterine activity, how that would be associated to clinical outcomes, potentially to pregnancy complications and things like that. Um, another one, which is the one I also run right now, which is HRV for training. So we developed apps and tools to track heart rate variability and interpret that data. Um, while developing these uh, apps and tools and working in these companies, I developed also, I would say, uh, I don't know, a need to understand better certain aspects linked to the physiology more and less to the technology, which is really my background. So then I went again back to university. I studied also uh, human movement sciences. It's called here in the Netherlands. It will be in sports science, basically. Uh, so a bit more the other side of the picture, how this data is normally used or understood in 
um, in practice. And then, uh, yeah, at this point, I just try to combine these things, the technology, the physiology, and building practical tools, and trying to communicate and help people making use of the data. I think that's the most important thing uh, at this point. The technology is there. We have good knowledge about these topics, um, and we need to make use of it basically just be healthy and perform better and why do you think that this particular topic resonated so closely with you because you were studying all sorts of stuff and everything seemed maybe dull or boring or just it didn't spark that interest what what was it about this science that sparked the interest and the passion maybe it's uh stress and now i leave it yeah <laughs> yeah, well, you said you said as an understatement that you start to get curious about this. So you start to dig into it. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't just a little bit of an interest. It was a PhD in multiple degrees. Yeah. So what yeah, what was yeah, the sure. what was the the converting factor? Yeah, I think at the very beginning maybe just a fascination, but then as I got more in this idea of monitoring the body and seeing um, maybe the self experimentation part of it, right? So how I could see certain things monitor in my body in relation to stressors, how you could capture that with the data, uh, that ability to quantify certain responses and then to change your physiology, for example, via training and things like that. Um, I think that really clicked somehow in a way that, uh, yeah, I never got bored since then uh, trying to understand this better and build tools and to help people making use of the data. And what were some of the first insights that you got into your own physiology? Because, and, and I'll tell you what, as, as, a, as a preface to that question, the reason why I'm here doing this with you is because I was in my physiology classes unlocking things and learning things about my body that I was like, it was like a selfish thing, right? You're like, wow, look at what my body can do. Look at how I can adjust certain things. And then it became selfless over time as I got to learn uh, more and more about the science and the applied science. But what, what was it in your case? What were some of the things that you learned about your physiology that showed you that in fact, everyone needs to know about this science? Yeah, for sure. I would say one of the main insights for me was that um, this stressor that had the largest, the largest impact on my body, uh, despite you know all the research on HRV and training and all the training that we might be doing, for me it was really more the work-related stress, right? So, as a scientist or an engineer or an entrepreneur, work is my main stressor, right? Um, you know, I exercise a lot, but it basically almost doesn't matter for my for my response. It's really a lot about how I live that psychological stressor, the work-related stressors, um, and seeing those things quite clearly in the data. For me, it was, um, yeah, well, first a wake-up call, like, so how can I balance things a bit differently and, you know, try to basically be healthier and, and live uh, better, but at the same time, it was also so obvious that this data that we can capture is not limited to training, um, which is one of its main applications. And I get that, right? It's um, there's a number a number of reasons I say why I think training is one of the main applications, starting from the fact that the user is typically highly engaged to the fact that the data is easier to use because if you need to change something let's say your body is a bit more stressed and you want to adjust things you just adjust the training that is very easy while if you have bigger stressors because something is off at work in your family or there's some health issue these kind of things you cannot just switch uh, them on and off or, or change them around so 
it's just harder in life to use these things and to stay engaged with them. But they are equally informative because again, stress is stress, right? Your your body doesn't really care where it comes from. So eventually, having the ability to capture this, uh, yeah, these different responses, I think, can be very powerful. And for me, in the context of the um, stress response to, let's say, negative chronic work-related stress, was quite was quite insightful. Um, yeah, right. And it's like with, with uh, work-related stress you could argue that there's more confounding variables because uh, training, like physical training, you can approach it systematically. And with the insights that we get from wearable devices, we can adjust in a systematic way. But the work environment is so unique to us. It's a unique to an environment, to our team. You know, there's so many of these variables that influence it. Uh, but like you said, the, the data still supports that, in fact, you are stressed. So you should take action. You know, we... we, we we need to take this and, and do something with it. So what were some of the things that you did with this data? And what were some of the differences that you noticed once you started to apply what you know about, let's say, stress management? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think um, there's uh, there's many, many different factors that at the same time always play a role. So first, just the awareness has an impact on, I would say, how we perceive things, because one one aspect to remember is always that it's not just stress, right? It's not uh, having to do with a stressful task it does not necessarily lead to a negative stress response, right? So that is why monitoring your physiology is interesting, because if it was just a way to capture the input, the stressor, then you know we would maybe not need it as much because we might know what is the stressor. But what it tells us is really how we respond. So the same stresses, sometimes we could respond positively and sometimes negatively. This is true for training as well as, as for other non-training related stressors. So there could be situations in which um, a task at work is, uh, we respond well to it, even if it is very stressful, maybe something we, uh, that challenges us, but still um, we do well. But then in another situation, even the same stressor, maybe it's a different time of the year. Maybe there are some other stressors in our life. And then our response to the same stressor differs. And that's why I think um, it can be insightful to look um, at the data and see and see how things are going personally. Often it was more about um, the simple things, I would say, really trying to um, to borrow terminology from training to periodize or submit the way we work, right? So you cannot always be on and always be, you know, working 12, 14 hours per day and do that, you know, Monday to Sunday, every day of your life. It's trivial, but, you know, when uh, when I was just out of school, that's basically what I was doing. Uh, you know, I, it's that phase of, of your life where maybe you feel like there's a lot to learn and, you know, you also need somewhat to prove yourself and to do, you know achieve the goals you set for yourself and, and things like that um, and that's also a road that leads you typically to burnout and situations that are idea- not ideal um, looking at the data I think can give you some that level of awareness and for me personally it was about trying to make some changes at that level um, but this also is a process that at this point has lasted more than 10 years right so there's uh, there's a lot in there there's um interpersonal relationships changing there's uh, finding you know the place where you want to live there's uh, um, training and how you 
your relationship with exercise as well, how that changes over the years, um, with basic health habits, um, sleep, diet, things like that, things you learn and try to prioritize over time. I would say um, really the basics and how you handle those for me, that was the most important thing. And I think that's also what I try to stress the most um, with other people as well. You know, sometimes you have people that have maybe an HRV that is on the low side and maybe later we can talk a bit about what that could mean uh, if we can do anything about that and things like that. But um, often we still maybe try to avoid the elephant in the room. So maybe this person is trying to exercise and eat well and all of that, but maybe you're also the CEO of a company and your job is obviously very stressful. So how are you doing with that? How are you handling it? Are you, you know, always on your phone 24-7 every day of the year? Um, those kind of things, like the macro stressors, I think, eventually are the ones that matter the most. And sometimes we sort of try to um, ignore them, so to speak. Right. And so they, they add up and they have, a, they have a big impact on your physiology. So if you can mitigate the micro stressors and if you can use data as a means of identifying whether or not you're chronically stressed, well, now you have more incentive and uh, more agency over your physiology and your stress response. Now, but, but before we continue, because I, I do want to jump into the topic of HRV and you know some, uh, you know, understanding some of this data and, and applying it in the right way. But before we get there, would you mind defining for our listeners stress? <laughs> um, uh, what's your definition of stress? Uh, what's what's your definition of uh, uh, hormesis, which I'm sure we're going to get into, and, and good stress and bad stress. So let's say, uh, uh, generally, what? how would you define stress? What's good stress? What's bad stress? I would say that a stressor is something that causes a disruption uh, in the system. Uh, and again, that could lead to a number of outcomes. So to look back to the second part and the good and the bad stress, um, the what determines that typically is how we respond to, to that stressor and a bit like we were saying before that could be highly dependent on you the context other stressors happening at that time it's not necessarily something associated to the specific stressor that's part of the challenge uh, that's a bit how i see stress so uh, some agent internal or external i would say at this point to the body uh, that causes a disruption uh, in our typical, uh, let's call it homeostasis or simply state of balance in our body, uh, and to which the body responds, again, in different ways depending on the current situation, and that is, let's say, an acute effect. Um, the acute effect is something we tend to study very well because you apply a stressor and then you look at the response and something even in the lab we try to look at different ways. What is more fascinating, I think, to me, and also very poorly understood in general, is how these plays are all done in the long term when things become chronic. Um, and many more factors play a role. And that's a bit of a maybe different conversation. Right. And then uh, would you mind describing this? Let's say there's a stress dial. How do we know when the good stress becomes bad stress? And, 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 and can you describe this effect from a data perspective? So objectively and then subjectively, how does this actually feel when we go from the good stress to the bad stress? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, here, uh, let's say that in terms of the data, the way I can think about this is to look at the stress response through markers of stress. And markers of stress could be ways to capture basically one of two things, typically, uh, as we face a stressor, the body response in a way so that we can see that response typically either in changes in autonomic activity, and that would be through markers of autonomic activity like resting heart rate or heart rate variability, or through hormonal changes, and there we might look at cortisol, for example. For practical reasons, we look at heart rate variability or HRV and heart rate a lot more because we can capture that very easily um, at this point, anytime, anywhere, and we cannot do the same with our hormones, basically. It's just the technology is just not there right now. Hopefully in the future, we will be able to have a clearer picture of that too. So we look at one side, which is the autonomic response to stressors. Um, and I think here it's just important to um, highlight a bit the timing of things when we look at objectively at the stress response. And what I mean is that um, when we face a stressor, during the stressor, we have what we could call a negative response. For example, heart rate could be elevated and HRV could be suppressed. After the stressor, we will basically transition back to normal, let's say, our values before the stressor. Now, when we measure the response, we need to let some time pass. So I think it's important to understand that we, any stressor acutely seems negative, even if it is actually eventually leading to positive response. Simple example is exercise. We measure these parameters during exercise, and of course, they are all uh, looking like it's a terrible situation, basically, for your health and physiology, right? Your heart rate is elevated, your HRV is very suppressed, and so on. But then we know that chronically exercise is good for you. And indeed, if you do a session and then you measure after a couple of hours, you'd expect your physiology to be perfectly normal or even in a state that that is better, so to speak, so higher HRV and lower heart rate with respect to before doing this session. So it's important that even when we try to look at things objectively, we look at the right time frame. And I'm stressing this because now there's more technology that measures HRV all the time. And I think we risk to get into a situation in which we make any physiological response something um, that is, uh, I don't know, medicalized almost, right? Something uh, that is negative uh, or to be concerned of uh, while many of these changes and transitions are perfectly normal and physiology needs to be measured in certain specific times that maybe later we can discuss so that you are actually looking at this response after the stressor and after your body could renormalize and you are not just looking at it acutely as it happens or you know a minute or two later and getting worried about it because that's really not the point. So when we look at stress objectively we apply a stressor, we know that there is a stressor, and then we look at how the body responds. After the fact, when sometimes has passed, um, as a negative response would still lead to, for example, a suppression in HRV for a long time, while everything goes well, after that acute response, you're normalized, and then you have a positive response. So this state, let's say, of stability, 
when your HRB or your S C rate goes back to your normal, that would be for me a positive stress response. Um, and that's how I would distinguish, let's say, positive and negative stressors in terms of the individual response after the same time. Um, subjectively, I'd say it's, uh, yeah, maybe not uh, really my area of expertise. Uh, obviously, I, you know, work with this data and with also subjective reporting uh, of stress. I think that's also obviously very individual, but to uh, thinking about your questions of when does it become, you know, negative chronically uh, in terms of, uh, of their response. Uh, I think it's, if I think even about myself, just as a case study subjectively, how I perceive stress and how this relates to the data, they do not always align, right? So I think that's one of the interesting aspects, but also the challenging ones, right? Because that's also how people sometimes get um, disillusioned with technology because they expect literally see to match how they feel. And that is not necessarily the case. There could be different things, could be different uh, dynamics, right? Sometimes maybe we have some sort of buffering capacity for stress, right? I had an example. Uh, last week I was in a short business trip uh, actually to to Oulu to visit Aura um, in Finland. And then uh, those two days, uh, you know, I you spend time flying in airports and then working and then you get there and, you know, you don't sleep much and right, it's not your bed and then you wake up early to train and all sort of things. And I felt very fatigued and stressed, right? Uh, but my data was perfectly normal. So that was maybe somewhat a surprise. I thought, okay, maybe, you know, I had a couple of good months with basically a very stable life here. Uh, maybe I have some buffering capacity for some stressors. But then I come back here and everything goes back to normal. And I think, okay, now it must be staying where it is or even getting better. And instead, I have sort of a delayed crash. So my data starts to show suppressions and then it stays suppressed for actually four or five days. And in this period, after the first two, three days, I was feeling actually perfectly normal, not aligned with the data. But then the fatigue caught up to me. And then eventually they were aligned and data was basically telling me what was going to happen before um, it happened. Because then this, I, I started really feeling the whole thing and the fatigue and so on. So I think the dynamics uh, of our subjective perception and, and what the data capture um, are not necessarily something that need to be aligned. There could be situations in which one is more informative than the other. Um, I think the the goal for me is never to use the data instead of your feel or your subjective perception. Is to try to combine the use uh, of these two things, right? Very, very well said. Um, so, to, in a if you if you can in a clear and concise way for the folks that don't have a very good relationship with their devices, how would you say in in, in simple terms? And not not that this you know everything that you said is absolutely clear it makes sense, but how would you describe for the average person tuning in how to have the best relationship with their biometric wearable data? I've seen the folks you know the type A individuals become obsessed, and then everything is about their data, and I've seen people that wear the aura every day and don't even charge it. <laughs> so like, 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you find a good balance mean. between like having wearable data and then feeling good about how you're applying this like what's what's the ideal circumstance one important thing is yes we have uh, you know you have bought a wearable and you're paying your subscription and you have invested in this but still take a step back there's a lot in there um try i would say not to um Try to look at a few things, maybe at the time or so, and I can give actually some, um, uh, because I've been thinking about this a lot more recently in the context of wearables, um, just some pointers on how, uh, you know, what to look uh, at with more uh, curiosity, let's say, and what you might actually rely on more as something uh, that is actually more informative about your body's response. And, you know, in Devices provide a lot of metrics, and um, they provide all of them as if they were derived the same way. So for the user, you do not know, for example, that typically that heart rate or pulse rate is actually measured by the optical sensor that is present in the device, while, for example, oxygen saturation is estimated with mathematical models, and then sleep stages are estimated with even more complex mathematical models that have a much larger error typically. So uh, I think this is important because sometimes also people get disillusioned because they see one thing that they clearly can recognize that is incorrect. And then they think, well, then everything in this device is incorrect. But that is not really how it works. So some things are reliable, some things are less reliable. Things that are measured, for example, your heart rate and your HRV and your skin temperature, those tend to be more accurate, at least at rest. So when you sleep, they tend to be good signals. So I would have a look at those more than at what is built on top of that, which could be, again, sleep-related metrics, um, fitness estimates, um, calories estimates, um, and things like that. So when you start to look at your physiology, um, I think you can start to see how your body responds to the different things you do, which could be informative in different ways in terms of also behavioral change um, and stress management. So I, I would I would start there. I would try not to go really all in. Um, an example I may make recently with athletes is also, um, you know, we we let's say the companies that sell these devices. Um, also try to build a bit of this rhetoric that you need to capture all this data 24-7 and that is so insightful. But if we take a step back and think a bit as athletes, what is our main limiter most of the time? Um, I'm thinking endurance athletes, but not only actually even uh, strength athletes or some athletes actually that use their muscles in some way. Typical, typically muscle soreness will be our main limit. And there is no way any of these sensors can measure it. So I think this simple realization should make us understand that we have clear limitations in terms of what is captured, um, and we cannot rely entirely on these devices because some things, uh, at this point, we can only perceive them ourselves, for example, how sore we are. Um, so if we try to understand that there's good data in there in terms of the physiological response of the body, but it's only always part of the picture uh, in the context of our health and performance. 
then maybe we can start having a good relationship with the tool, which is one where, okay, we check the data because we want to see, um, we did this and that, and we want to see what happened, uh, you know, as our heart rate increased, and maybe situational situations are very obvious, we are getting sick, maybe our heart rate has increased, skin temperature has increased, HRV has reduced, uh, all of these things can help us understand uh, that maybe uh, it's a good day to stay home, and then also to see when we are getting back to normal recovery time, when it's time to get back into our normal routine. So there are some things that are quite obvious when we look at the data. So I think that can be insightful also beyond what we can perceive sometimes. So they can, the data can show us things a bit earlier or after the fact, it can show us objectively if we have actually gone back to what we were before or not. So these kind of things, but always recognize that also not everything is captured by this device, any device. Uh, and that's fine. So we should not rely entirely only on them. But at the same time, we cannot, I think, dismiss them uh, because there is useful data which is just being tracked um, based on how our physiology changes. So I hope that you know more people can find that kind of uh, balance in there. Yeah. And when would you say that this wearable device data is, let's say, the, the most valuable? So when is it? Like, are there certain times of the day or certain circumstances when we can reference this data and it has the greatest return on our investment, you know, actually looking at it and making decisions with it? Under what circumstances would that lie? Yeah, yeah, great questions. I think uh, this uh, probably the most important thing. Once we have a good relationship with the data, we still cannot trust the data all the time. <laughs> it's also tricky because even the data that is measured, for example, heart rate or HRV, um, when it is, there are situations in which the measurement is more accurate and this one aspect, but that is not all. So even if you have accurate data, there are moments in which the meaning and the interpretation changes. So in certain situation, the data that you have captured is not only accurate, but also physiologically meaningful. And in a second, we talk about what that means. And in other moments, you still capture the accurate data, but it just has basically no physiological meaning in the context of your response to stress. So when we look at wearables, there is the best moment to capture the data is actually how they started, which is during sleep, because you are not you're not moving. So the first thing is that the technology works very well, so it's accurate because these um, optical sensors, they are really prone to issues when there is movement. I think uh, we all know that if you exercise or move your wrist a lot and you have a wrist device or, you know, your finger, if you have a ring and things like that, you know that this thing will get messed up and the data is not, not accurate. While you're sleeping, the data is accurate. But then the second part, which is eventually the important one, is that during sleep, this is also more meaningful, physiologically speaking, because you are measuring at rest. So you get a snapshot of your resting physiology. That's typically hours after stressors, for example, if you were stressed during the day, you exercised during the day, or you were traveling, you know, then you have your dinner, you have your evening, you go to bed, and then you're at rest, and hours have passed from the stressors, and you capture your body's response. So if everything goes fine, and you're responding well to stress, your physiology should show that things are pretty much where they were before. So 24 hours before, the night before, you should have similar and alternative to this 
if you do not have a wearable, but you still track your physiology with an app or, um, you know, again, we make one that you can use to track your physiology with a phone. Others um, can be linked to an external sensor, chest drop, things like that. You can take a snapshot of your physiology first thing in the morning. This is not different from doing things like measuring your body weight first thing in the morning, right? You, you do it in a context in which you can do it more or less the same way every day and before you do things that impact the day. In case of weight, it could be, you know, before you eat or before you exercise. In case of HRV, which is, again, a marker of your autonomic nervous system response to stress. So basically measure also before you do anything else because anything impacts your autonomic nervous system. So before you um, exercise, eat, or um, start thinking about those sort of things that could upset you or read your social media and things like that. So you wake up, take your measurement. That is also a resting physiology measurement, very similar to a night measurement that you could take as you sleep with a wearable. So in those contexts, the data represents your stress response. And those are, I think, both the, uh, the ideal moments to, to capture the data. Because if you measure, for example, if I measure my HRV right now, I can also get an accurate measurement because I'm not moving. I'm just sitting here and talking to you. But then this measurement is not really representative of much because, first of all, I'm talking. So this will also disrupt my breathing and impact the data in a way. Um, then there might be, you know, some underlying stress, so to speak, you know, engagement in the conversation and things like that. So this measurement doesn't really tell me much. And if I was to drink some water now, then my HIV would be elevated for some time uh, if I was to measure it. Uh, and that also doesn't mean anything. It's just that we are looking at things in a moment in which they are not really representative of what we are interested in, which is this stress response. That's why I think really the night or the morning routine are key if you want to assess um, how our basic, what I would call baseline physiological stress changes over time in response to all the stressors that we face. Right, and, and it's it's ironic because if you wanted to double down on the accuracy, then the way that these devices work, they would be incentivizing a sedentary lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, certainly. Never move so you can get a good reading. My, my aura is telling me to just sit around all day. <laughs> exactly. Um, interesting. Okay, and... Um, let me ask you this question. And obviously this is a, in, in your case, slightly controversial. Uh, do you think that the average person with a wearable device using an app and a platform, do you think that they alone by monitoring their data and getting insights from the app that they have enough to actually incentivize the right lifestyle changes or should they work with a coach or a professional or, you know, is there some next step that they need to take that they should take? to genuinely have a good relationship with their science? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, so personally, um, the way I see it right now is that if you have the opportunity to work with someone, that is fantastic. So it's really a way to uh, step up this whole process. Um, and again, we can borrow this from athletics and you know performance and you know every athlete as coach, so more or less. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot that goes on in there um, in terms of the objective data, the subjective data, or simply establishing a plan. I think this is also 
key. Um, when we when we do things for ourselves, often we are maybe reactive, very reactive. So even if we use the data, even if we have all the understanding of the data and how it works, then we might see you know some low scores some days, and we make some changes, and then we just act very quickly to what we see in the data, but maybe without the big picture and long-term plan, which I think should be always the first step when we start using these devices. So your goal should not be optimizing this metric or that metric. It should be more, you know, your health or your performance, depending on what you care about. And then you use the metrics to make some changes so that you get there. But yeah, working with someone, I think it's, it, it's very powerful. Um, we can, of course, just use the data. Um, if we understand the limitations, what is captured, what is not captured, how to use it. I think it is tricky there uh, because sometimes the companies are not too transparent uh, in terms of all these differences that we tried to highlight earlier about, you know, even which parameters are actually accurate, which ones are not. Uh, everything, there are a lot of claims about everything always being great, but uh, some things are better than others, and then it's easy to, to get food. Uh, I've seen a lot of people doing a sort of micro lifestyle changes and then looking, for example, at how this would impact um, their sleep stages. And that's something that it's, re- it's very hard to do because the technology works okay with deep stages, but it's not that it really uh, gives you any information that is accurate enough and reliable enough to be able to make uh, meaningful changes and, and you know, trust the outcomes that you see. And this can become a problem if we don't understand the difference between, you know, looking at, again, your heart rate that is measured and all these things that are estimated and have a degree of error because then maybe we implement changes that really do not have a meaningful impact on our body and all of these things uh, are yeah again just difficult to to understand because they are not communicated to us properly so that level of transparency sometimes is missing so I think we need to try to first get to a stage where we are a bit more transparent and this is also the same with the quality of the data, things you were saying before, it was great when you're not moving, otherwise dances work so well, but almost no device out there gives you any information about the quality of the data, right? So you see the data, uh, and when the data is low quality, you do not know. You can only guess. For example, if you, even if you exercise and you have a device that measures heart rate, and sometimes you know that the heart rate is wrong, for example, certain periods maybe is very high or very low, and you know, it doesn't match what you were doing. And you just say, okay, there, it's it's incorrect. But the device probably also knows, but it does not report, hey, here, probably the data was not correct. I think if we were just to get to a stage where we are a bit more transparent with these things, um, there would be a lot to gain for the user uh, because otherwise it's easy to get fooled and it's, it's never the user's fault here. It's just how the devices operate, how they show the data, how they are marketed, um, I think obviously there's a lot of powerful information and useful information, but at the same time, um, it can, yeah, it can be challenging to make use of them uh, individually or also with the coach because the coach are not 
guarantee that this person actually knows all of these things or can understand all of these differences. Uh, but typically, I think um, it can be helpful, at least uh, in the context of having a plan, using the data with that optics in mind. So let's use it to make some changes to the plan, not to be reactive all the time and just make changes all the time without having this view of the long-term plan and the smaller adjustments that I think that's where the wearable can play um, a, a better role at this stage. And and who do you think is the ideal uh, practitioner or professional that can work with people to do this? Like who can actually you know, grasp this and, and look at the big picture of someone's life and the data and help them take the best steps towards optimization, regardless of what that, well, whatever that means for the individual, whether they're an athlete or a, you know, CEO or just the average person, who's the ideal practitioner? Yeah, yeah probably very context specific, I would say. Um, I think here, um, a background in psychology will be very welcome, right? Because also how we um, respond ourselves to the data and to the things that we see, uh, behavioral change. Uh, so behavioral scientists also obviously would have so a lot of different skills from the planning, you know, depending on if you're an athlete, that would be a coach which has an expertise in your specific area. Uh, so I think it's a, really a mix of skills um, depending on the individual and the goals that we want to achieve. But there is, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that there is one aspect that is more important than the others because then you also have the technology aspects, right? So these things that I'm talking about, if I hadn't actually built this technology, I don't think I would know um, when you can trust this or that, um, or what can be done, what cannot be done, um, when the physiological link, meaning, let's say, between stress and HIV breaks, because, you know, I've done these studies and looked at the literature, but otherwise, I think sometimes we trivialize many of these relationships. So. Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's an, an easier role, but I think it's something that maybe in the future can be more common and kind of a lot of people are making use of all the data that they are collecting. So so definitely not like your your average, you know, health coach. Like it should be someone that has a background in psychology, maybe behavioral sciences, perhaps exercise physiology or a, or a blend of all the above that can actually interpret this and understand not only what it means, but your relationship with it, right? As we've described, is one of the most important uh, uh uh, circumstances and characteristics that this that this process has to have of developing the right relationship with your physiology and what you're studying. And let me ask yeah, you this. Yeah, so for sure. Obviously, you know, the, the, the technology still needs to evolve. Uh, we still need to, in a way, evolve. But what do you see as the ideal circumstances uh, with, you know, human beings and their biometric wearable devices? Like, let's say five to 10 years from now, where do you hope that we are with this data in our process of optimizing our performance, our health, our lives? Let's put it this way. We, in the past 10 years, we got really good at measuring some of these things. Before, it was not easy at all. Um, if you look at maybe 95% of the literature on heart rate variability, it's studies in which someone was taken to the lab you take a measurement of their physiology, then they do an intervention of several weeks, and then back to the lab and take another snapshot of your resting physiology. And if for anyone that has measured their HRV, I mean, it's almost a ridiculous approach because there is so much day-to-day variability in the data. Right. 
So you you don't like you could even capture the exact opposite of what happened just because maybe that was a low day at the end of the study. Uh, even in a week in which maybe you had a very good week and still you had suppression a day, maybe you just had a heavy dinner. Maybe you were just very stressed to be in the lab to take this measurement. So the the ecological validity, right? So the real life applicability, basically, of this measurements and studies, I think, was very low. Um, now we measure continuously your home while you're living your life and with some tools you don't even think about it when you measure in the night Um, and all of this data is teaching us a lot on the relationship between uh, stress and how we perceive it and the environment and different stressors and our health and our performance Uh, so I think that has been great and there's a lot of studies going on what we I think know basically nothing about still is how do we actually change things in a positive way. For example, what is the impact if I was to do this intervention? What would happen? What do we expect in terms of our physiology? If my HRV has been reducing for a couple of months, is that a seasonal effect or can I do something in terms of my behavior? to change that and does it even matter that is even bigger question right so yes hiv is associated with many uh, different clinical outcomes in different ways but we don't really know uh, what happens if we do an intervention that you know tries to target a change in your physiology if that also eventually targets a change in the outcome in terms of health all of these things we don't really know, and I think I'd be interested to see uh, if we can learn more about these things. Even the simplest things, exercise protocols, breathing protocols, like can we change how we respond to stressors in a way that our data is more stable, so we have less of these suppressions that are in theory negative, and then maybe we don't get into these states of chronic suppressions that might last months or years. Um, so yeah, I would hope, you know, in the next decade, now that we can measure things a lot easily and that a lot of people are using them, maybe we learn more about how we influence them with simple protocols that might help our health and performance and also try to learn maybe later how the change in the metric leads to or associates with a change in, in the actual outcome, which is eventually what matters more than more than the metric itself. It's wonderfully said, and I'm I'm looking forward to that future as much as you are. Um, you know, there's there's one there's one question. Uh, I mean, all these questions are just kind of in the spur of the moment, right? But there's there is one question that I've I think I've had for you for ever since I discovered your work, maybe five or six years ago, <laughs> and I I don't know how far you're going to take this, but. What is your definition of HRV for, let's say, I don't know, call it a, a teenager? Like, well, why does a teenager even need to know what an HRV, what HRV is? But the question is, you know, when the average person stops you and says, "Hey, Marco, you know, what do you what do you do, man? How would you describe this, and how do you make it valuable for that for any individual? What is HRV? Why does it matter?" The way I think about HRV is as a proxy of our stress response. So it's for us the simplest, most practical way to capture how we respond to stress. And eventually 
we all face stressors. So no matter what we do, it could be school, it could be training, it could be you know anything in our life. We deal with stress a lot, and that impacts our health first of all. And then if we care about you know our performance in certain contexts, that will also be impacted. So by getting an idea of how we respond to stressors, looking at HRV, becoming first a bit more aware of certain stressors and their impact on our body, then maybe we can start making some changes here and there and then keep you know our health and performance where we want it to be. So that's a bit how I would say I, I think about it in simple terms, but I would say that eventually that's uh, that's what it is when we do things the way we discussed earlier. So we look at it, you know, at the right time and the right context, then longitudinally over time and look at relative changes with respect to your own data and not, um, you know, absolute values, for example, and, and things like that. That That's what it is um, in a certain context and, and how it can be used. Is high HRV something that anybody can realistically achieve um, I know that it's, I, I would I mean, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like one of, if not the most subjective, like, uh, biometric, a, a variable, right? It's like totally subjective, but is it something that everybody can, you know, improve, uh, or are there maybe some, is there any reason why, uh, you know, even applying everything that we know about HRV that someone's HRV might not get up very high? Um, how subjective is it really, and how much agency do we have over that uh, that value? I think that we have agency, but it is limited. So um, I think it's very important to understand this because um, from the angle I often look things at, and let's say I talk to athletes or top performers or people that really try to check all the boxes, right? You know, sleep, diet exercise and those sort of things. I always think, okay, your absolute value almost does not matter. You look at how things change in relative terms. So when you have a suppression, you know there is more stress and you look at things that way and try to make adjustments here and there to keep things stable. Now, this does not mean that you cannot change the absolute value. And there are situations in which, for sure, you can change it even by a lot. And I'm thinking, if we think about just the health of, you know, the current state of, let's say, the Western world, right? So obesity, diabetes, all sort of issues. Um, obviously, most people, if we measure their resting physiology and we put them through behavioral and lifestyle changes, the arresting physiology will change dramatically. So things can change, but I think we do ourselves a disservice if we start looking at this metric and we think that we want to increase it because there could be, well, there is a strong genetic component that means that more or less our HIV is around a certain value. And then if we are already healthy, it might be that it never goes higher than than where it is. And it is useful in this context of capturing stress responses and making adjustments 
and you might get to better health and better performance, but not necessarily better HRV. So I think it's important that we use the tool as a tool and not as the, you know, the metric to necessarily optimize because that might not be realistic. So that's why I don't like to say that, I mean, we do have agencies, again, we can change it, but uh, I like to put some constraints around that and, and also to shift typically the conversation around, let's look at relative changes and let's use the data that way because it might be that in absolute numbers, it just will not change. Um, we don't understand these things very well. Like some people have very low uh, HRV, so to speak, uh, with respect to the population. If you look at the distribution of the population, some people will be on the lower end and they are healthy and they perform well and they do all the right things. And I don't think we have an understanding of why that is the case. But clearly at that point, there's some genetic component there um, that does not make it so easy to implement changes. Uh, that's why I think we should look at relative changes always also within the context of what we discussed earlier of trying to have healthy relationship with the tool, with the metrics, use them effectively for what they can do. And then if we make sometimes some lifestyle changes and things like that, or if we have a lot of room for improvement, then for sure we can also change our absolute HRV, so to speak. But that is uh, yeah, a bit, uh, let's say, the framework in which I, I try to work in. Um, does, that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and and I think that the, the main thing here for folks tuning in is like using HRV as a proxy, but not as the thing that you're trying to optimize, like try to optimize your behavior, try to optimize your lifestyle, and then look at how this may reflect on your HRV. But I see a lot of people, a lot of my clients included, uh, you know, high performers in all categories who go, hey, I just need to get my HRV up. Like I want to get it up like 20% or 20 points. And I'm just like, <laughs> You no, know, let's, let's improve your quality of life. And, and if it reflects, and great, but I want you to feel the difference. Um, but yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And Sorry to interrupt. I will just add one thing because yeah, I no, think uh, that also put things in perspective um, with HRV and long-term changes. Um, we don't understand all of these very well, but there are also seasonal changes. So that's also something to remember. So if you if you start working with a client and it's uh, September and maybe, you know, you're getting towards winter, um, it's unlikely that you will increase the HRV because HRV tends to be a bit lower in winter. So you're not a bad physio or bad coach. It's just that, you know, there are also other changes there uh, and we need to remember those kind of things. And that's also one of the reasons why sometimes, you know, we should just not think in, in those terms because it's not, um, how physiology works, you know. Yeah, some some of the toughest conversations I have to have is in describing that although these are clinical grade wearable devices, it's not clinically perfect data that we're seeing uh, because there's just so many confounding variables and like, you know, just increasing a number for the sake of increasing a number isn't enough to actually change your life and your performance. Um, and, you know, I, I know that we're running short on time and I know that this next topic we can have several podcasts on. This is probably going to be the, the funnest part of the show for most people. But what would you say are like the, the highest ROI active to passive investments that just about anyone can make to objectively improve their quality of life in a way that the metrics can reflect? Everything from yeah, let's say yeah, if you so want to start with like, I don't know, breath work as being the most accessible, you know, or, or you name it. But if you can give us a range from the active to the passive. Yeah, so I would say uh, really to start with the with the very basics of 
are you eating well uh, are you sleeping well and are you active and active really means moving possibly as frequently as possible not just you know those 45 minutes of exercise that we are doing but moving as much as possible and then staying active and then again prioritizing your sleep and trying to eat a healthy diet i think these uh, have evidence behind that interventions aiming at looking at these aspects also showed um, positive changes in you know reduced resting heart rate and increasing hrv those kind of things uh, tend to show up when you address this uh, you mentioned breath work um, that's something that i think is very interesting because also tightly coupled with hrv in a way right so when you take deep breaths you acutely increase your hrv so there's that sort of stimulus we could even call it in terms of the parasympathetic system um, so the evidence there says that as you do the practice there is a meaningful increase in hrv it is acutely as you do it so after the fact it does not necessarily stay there i think this is one of the also areas that interest me in terms of what we will learn in the future right so if you keep up the practice and do it um, according to you know best practices and protocols that typically involve quite some dedication to blocks of 20 minutes per day uh, for biofeedback typically uh, 10-12 weeks at least um, to start with and then you if you see changes in your baseline physiology I think that would be particularly interesting there is uh, mixed evidence some people have that response others not so I think those kind of things, all these practices. Mind from, if I jump in for yeah, a second? Yeah, please. Yeah, so so with respect to the the breath work, something that I find fascinating is how, you know, it's again like like you said, it's a, it's very accessible. Like right now, I can as I'm as, as I'm speaking, my HRV is lowering. As you are listening, your nasal breathing, you're using maybe the diaphragm. All of a sudden, your HRV is higher, right? So it's very accessible, but. Over time, let's say that you are more conscious of just nasal breathing or like mouth taping while you sleep. In the beginning, it feels uncomfortable, but there are these uh, changes in your physiology and anatomy that start to evolve. So for example, the nasal breathing, some people that aren't used to nasal breathing, they get more of this air hunger. So they feel like they need to mouth breathe. But what's happening is as they continue to breathe through their nose, they build up, let's say, their tolerance to higher levels of CO2 which is acidic, gives you the urge to breathe. And as you improve your CO2 tolerance, it becomes easier to nasal breathe. As you nasal breathe, you get more of this vasodilation in the sinuses. You know, So there's, there's all, all these different uh, changes in your anatomy and physiology. And I, I would say, yeah, like if you can pair this with biofeedback, oh my gosh, like now you have everything you need to really truly evolve the way that you breathe. And then boom, you have higher HRV and better uh, control over your autonomic nervous system. So to me, that's fascinating because it can be used from everything from a, an active intervention all the way to a very, very passive intervention. I can, I can, I can have yeah. a profound influence on your performance in a podcast to a Olympic, you know, time trial, um, and everything in between. Uh, so just wanted to, you know, <laughs> share, share, share yeah, my, yeah. my perspective. Yeah. On, you make on, a great on, point on there, there, especially on uh, how the practice might lead to other changes, right? Even I think even in our mind, right? So if I practice meditation, um, I do not necessarily expect a change in my HRV, but it changes the way 
I deal with stress then all the time, mm-hmm. or at least I try to get there, right? To be less reactive, um, to respond differently when I face stressors or things that might annoy me, right? Sometimes just the act of doing it or remembering that I do that, you enter in that sort of character and you're like, okay, if I am this person that does this, I cannot be this person that then, mm-hmm. you know, gets all furious yeah. about trivial things, right? So I think well, it becomes part so of many identity, things play a role Exactly. Um, interestingly, you know, we've, we've talked about this sort of stress dial, right? And how, you know, we can add in these hormetic stressors and if we can notice and monitor our physiology while we're engaged with them, we have more agency over our response. And what I've noticed personally is that when I, there's, there's three things that I've noticed and I, I just want to get your take in perspective. Maybe you can help me uh, elaborate for the audience and help them gain some value here. But the three things that I find that uh, improve my HRV the most are when I'm consistently f- free diving and spear fishing. And I have to be very aware of how I'm responding and how it influences my performance. Uh, when I'm exposing myself to the cold often, so cryotherapy, cold showers, and when I'm fasting consistently. And would you mind describing to the listeners scientifically why this actually has an impact on my HRV in the long term and how can it, how it can improve my performance outside of these activities? It's important also, I think, to highlight that this also might be individual. For example, I'm thinking about the fasting. So I was also reading more literature about this um, just recently. Well, there's obviously many different forms of fasting. There's even fasting that does not involve caloric restriction. There is fasting that involves caloric restriction. Uh, that will also have an impact. Let's say that in Part of the literature, we see uh, a change, a reduction in resting heart rate and increase in HRV when there is some form of caloric restriction involved. Um, myself, I've also experienced this. Uh, if I restrict calories a bit to lose some weight um, in the context of you know endurance and performance and for a race and things like that, um, typically I have quite an immediate acute response with heart rate that goes very low and HRV that goes higher. It's not the same for everyone. Some people, maybe their body really feels that this is some sort of negative stressor, um, and they they go the other way around. Um, So I think that's also why it's interesting to look at the data, because you might be different from another person. And to make this even more interesting, I think, is that if we think about the example with exercise that acutely is negative but chronically is good, then even if you have a suppression in HRV, it does not necessarily mean that that is bad, actually, for for us. It could be that if we do that for long enough, maybe we have a positive chronic response. So I think it's important to... This is not to say that any suppression in HRV will be good eventually, but it's just to say that um, it's not obvious and we don't, we don't know all of this well. So sometimes... Um, yeah, we need to figure out sometimes with experimentations and things like that. Um, similar things uh, related to cold exposure and cryotherapy. Um, the opposite often would happen if you maybe do uh, hot baths and, uh, and you know, you are exposed to hot temperature and things like that, right? That acutely would really raise your heart rate and, you know, your blood vessels dilate and your, you know, your blood pressure reduces, your heart rate increases and you have all these 
sort of big stress response. But that is also known to be quite good for your cardiovascular health if you do that long term. So these relationships are, are complex. We could have certain acute effect, the same or the opposite chronic effect um, based on based on this uh, on these different stresses. Um, what was the first one that you had mentioned? Oh, the first one was when you were um, spear fishing, I think, um, and um, and diving. Um, I, I wonder if that's uh, because you are so what in the zone and that's something that you really, uh, you know, you train for, you practice and then you execute and, and it's something that um, yeah, maybe puts your body in that state, uh, of, let's yeah. say, a positive yeah. response. Yeah. I certainly do achieve a flow state, but it, it's an environment. It's an ex- it's an environment where I see the influence of my stress, my performance to an extreme and I think it inspires me to be or to build intuition with other circumstances and situations where there absolutely is, I mean, in every situation, right? There is a link between your stress response and your performance. But it's like, that's like the extreme that shows me just how deep that link is. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people would describe spearfishing as, I think it's very accessible. I think some people will say, oh, it's inaccessible, it's inaccessible to me. But the point that you just made is, in fact, we should try to find these subjective areas, experiences, and stressors that can help us modify our stress response to improve our quality of life in the long run in the big picture. Um, uh, and, and you know, which brings me to my last question, because I know that we're absolutely short on time. Um, and that is, you know, when you measure, H, you know, being in, in, in your field, measuring and being so intimately involved in, in the biometrics that measure our stress response, what would you say is some of the low-hanging fruit to make sure that we can double down as much as possible on the hormetic stressor that is going to make us stronger, faster, fitter over time. Like how can we set the stage for our physiology to gain as much from the positive stress that we add in? So one insight that monitoring gives us is about, again, how we respond, but then in turn, it it allows us to play with the timing of the stressor. We talked before about, you know, coaching and having a plan. Normally when we have a plan, that's a good starting point, but you know, that we all know the plan changes all the time. Um, and the idea of the data and the feedback is that we can apply stressors when the body is ready to assimilate them in a way that will lead to better health and performance. Um, and this has actually been shown in a few studies in exercise uh, where looking at HRV, you would split two people in the, two groups of people um, training for the same event into a group that would follow the plan and a group that when their HRV is suppressed, for example, they would skip the high-intensity stimulus. So this group, eventually trains less or less hard or does less high-intensity workouts, which is actually, you know, the stimulus that gives you the most improvement typically. Um, But they end up performing either equally or better. This has been done in a number of studies, runners and cyclists, so there's there's a few of those. Um, And that tells you that when you apply the stressor, it matters a lot, maybe even more 
than the type of stressor you apply. Because if you go hard when your body is already stressed and not ready to assimilate that stimulus, then basically you're just not going to gain anything from it. So you just do that work. Your risk may be to end up into a negative chronic response and maybe that could be at work, uh, a burnout. Uh, it could be in training, being overtrained, all sorts of negative things, just poor health and performance. But the timing really matters. So if you want to set the stage, I think for better health and performance, we should try to manipulate the stresses in a way that is more in agreement with our body's ability to assimilate the stressor and respond to it positively over time. So, so Marco, what you're telling me is <laughs> a great way to summarize what you do is you're an expert in smarter, not harder. <laughs> your PhD I tried to, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's a that's an that's very well said and that's actually a that's absolutely perfect right and 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 it practically um would you say that this is like as simple as waking up in the morning looking at what your metrics are you know uh saying let's say your recovery score right or your sleep score and from there making the decision about how hard or how long or if you're going to train or not you know is this what it kind of what this effect looks like on a day-to-day basis and are, are yeah, the so platforms that are available to us right now, are they proficient in uh, incentivizing that based on these scores? Yeah, so I would uh, make, just to make it a bit more complex, I would make another distinction between your actual physiology and the scores that you find in this tool. So I would say try to look at the actual physiology, try to look at your resting heart rate, your HRV, look at if those numbers change negatively. Um, you have different ways to behave there. You can be very reactive. There is a suppression. You make a change. You can be less reactive. This is where the research is going now. So you, you give it two, three days of a suppression and you're like, okay, now there's clearly a signal there. So let's just make the change now. So that could be a way to do it. The way why I say look at the physiology and not necessarily the readiness recovery scores, sleep scores and things like that is that the scores mix your physiology and your behavior. So sometimes you might have a low score because your behavior was different. You slept less, you exercised more, those things. But what you want to really see is how your body responded. It's not what the algorithm thinks you should be because of your behavior. For example, you slept a bit less, the algorithm thinks, hey, sleeping less means that you're tired so that you should have a lower recovery score or lower readiness score. But then what is your physiology actually saying? Because maybe that lower sleep or higher exercise did not impact your physiology negatively. And if you are maybe doing something specifically like training more on purpose because you want to lead to a certain response, then you really want to see, hey, how am I handling this higher intensity or volume training block? Is my physiology normal? Great. Is it suppressed? Not so good. But if you look at this course, they mix the two things, the behavior and the response, in a way that you really don't know what is happening there. Um, that's why I would not use those, even though that's the first thing you see, I would not use those um, for the decision-making. That can be something useful in there as well, of course, uh, especially if you don't have a plan, then maybe they try to you know, combine a bit of everything and give you something that, again, is a bit of a reactive approach, but still... Um, 
is not to dismiss them entirely, but it's still it's a mathematical model with certain expectations depending on what's the input, and the input is not just physiology, it's also behavior. So if you look at, at the physiology, interesting contrary to the HRV, look at those data, and then if you see a change and you feel good, maybe give it two days, give it three days, and then start implementing a change um, to make sure things go back to normal quickly. In the studies, we always wait, let's say for a couple of days, what we call a baseline change. So let's say a weekly change instead of a daily change. Um, but that's because in a study, you know, to have these protocols that are the same for every person and, you know, replicate um, the study as aware. But in real life, things are a bit different, right? So sometimes you have an, an acute suppression one day and you also feel terrible. It's also doesn't make any sense to wait for three days before you make a change, right? So if you're getting sick and there is a huge red flag, you implement the change right away. That's why we always need to work with the subjective and the objective together to decide the best course of action, I think, in real life. But my advice would be, if you see changes in your resting physiology, resting cartilage, resting HRV, that stick for two, three days, even if you feel okay, that's maybe a moment to try to pause and try to assess what could be uh, going wrong, uh, what stressors have you faced, and can you maybe make some changes in the stressors you are going to face that day or in the following days? That could be reducing stressors, like reducing training intensity, but it could also be giving priority to positive things that we discussed earlier, right? So maybe you just try to sleep a bit more, uh, do some breathing exercises and things like that, and leave the training untouched. So you have, I think, freedom to play with different things. Um, and see how that works and then learn over time. Right. And, and, and I think this really speaks to the folks that, you know, are like that grind set mindset. That's like the folks that, you know, they have to show up every single day, go as hard as possible, you know, uh, screw the data, like mental, you know, it's, it's all a mental, those people are going to, are going to burn out or they're going to have a, a shorter lifespan or they're going to get sick. And then that'll prevent you from going as hard as you really want to go in the long term, which is what actually matters. Um, and, uh, you know, I uh, anecdotally, because you know you've shared I mean, half of the research. Anecdotally, I've seen my best physical performance. Like when I was uh, road cycling, I would take this very seriously. I would only cycle the days that I had high HRV, and it's how I was able to level up as a cyclist faster than anybody else around me. Because they were going every single day. It's oh, it's a lifestyle, and I'm all for the lifestyle. But I was going on the days where my body was prepared to do it, and I was recovering better, so I was able to accelerate my performance. And I think anybody yeah, that yeah, wants to accelerate performance should look at their data. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, I know we have to conclude this this uh, this show. Is there anything else that you want to leave with our audience? Uh, maybe where they can find you, any you know, any any where they can stay in touch if they want to ask you any questions, any uh, incoming works or books or anything that you want to make sure we 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 mention here on the show. Yeah, so people can find me um, on Twitter at uh, Latini underscore Marco. That's last name underscore first name. Uh, I write Substack these days, so where I try to cover a lot of these aspects. So that's also probably one of the best ways to, um, yeah, uh, stay up to date with the work and also engage people. Always to comment and ask questions, and uh, I try to, yeah, reply to everyone. Cool. Well, Marco, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much, and I hope to have you back on the show very soon. Thank you so much. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. 
for all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques, and of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, andresprechel.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day.